like to speak a little bit <clears throat> this evening about the universe as, as teacher. Karada was referring to it a bit last night as well, life as teacher. It sounds good. Is there something really there or is it just a nice cliche? I used to hear a lot of people who didn't go to college would say, um, the streets were my teacher, my college. To say that the, the universe is our teacher and to rescue it from the category of cliché I think in order to grasp it, you have to hear with a very simple mind that uh, doesn't know anything. And that's that question that from time to time <clears throat> it's been suggested you ask, not necessarily in words, while you're sitting, what is this? The universe teaches us in very simple ways to say you're cold so you put on another layer of clothing and then you're warm oh that's how it works and you get too warm you take that layer of clothes off and then you oh you're comfortable again that's not too interesting is it it's we all just keep doing that we don't examine what's happening or, you know, if you stay out in the rain too long, something starts to happen to the body and mucus starts coming out of these holes. And we have what is called a cold. Or there's lawfulness all over the place, wherever we look. So things are happening. There's, it's kind of an ocean of cause and effect, of conditions, revealing themselves all the time, 24 hours a day, never takes a break. regarding the body, if you recall, when we talked about the contemplation of eating. Each piece of food we take into the mouth and chew and make part of our system has an effect. And we can either learn from that effect or not. And it's that way with everything. We have a choice of learning. So learning here is used in a... It's not as if somebody gets up uh, and has an official title or that you have to have a spiral notebook. It's simply that something happens, there's a challenge, something happens, and if we meet it with awareness, there's the potential, the possibility for learning from that. The teaching is there. The teaching is invariable. In other words, it's always happening. The question is whether there's a light goes off, whether we see into it, insight. And when we do, it's a very good feeling to learn, to see into something. What I'd like to uh, sketch out a little bit tonight is just one um, kind of learning, one kind of teaching that the universe is doing. Again, 24 hours a day, never takes a break. And it's particularly relevant for what we're doing here. And it's time for those of us who've been here since the beginning of the retreat 
to more and more um, not only pay attention to content, of course, it's coming up in our mind, but more and more start to look at some things that are happening from a slightly different angle, from the point of view of process. What I'm talking about is impermanence, change. Whereas if there's anything that's being taught, it's that. Just around the clock, from moment to moment. Just this IMS, Insight Meditation Society. Is it really? I mean, what was it? First, someone owned this place. I don't know if you know that. That was the ballroom outside where we do the walking meditation. They used to do probably waltzes and all kinds of things in there. Now we do walking meditation because it's a Buddhist meditation center. But in between, it was a Catholic seminary. Did you notice some of the windows? Jesus. And now it's Insight Meditation Society. And who knows? In a little while, maybe it'll be Cinema 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. If we keep giving talks on impermanence and death, for sure it will be. Because we have time, we're going to get to death kind of cap off impermanence. So wherever we look, whatever we're doing, it's happening at whatever level. If you want to look historically at whole civilizations, they're all gone. Whatever ones you're interested in, they're gone. They're now in museums and in books. They're not people anymore. They're just artifacts, written documents. Strong, famous people. Napoleon, Clark Gable. (laughs) All dead, gone. The Buddha, Jesus. I've had at times had that. uh, It's been very powerful for me. Just, it's clearly my imagination. But imagining the, the, the power of, let's say, someone like uh, the Buddha or Jesus, that is the, the depths at which they must have been living to have um, set forth energy that's still rolling today, 2,500 years later, let's say, in the Buddhist teaching. And at some point, despite all of that power and clarity and compassion, that physical body um, came to an end. There was no way to stop that. It's over, even for the Buddha, gone. Everything keeps changing wherever you look. We're starting a center in Cambridge. Just brand new, just painted. Already you can see the nicks starting. It's very good. There's wisdom in that. You can get annoyed, try to maybe get the painters to come back, paint it over again. It'll just get nicked again. I don't mean to just let everything go to the dogs. That's the other extreme. But what is happening is time is just constantly going like that, constantly running out. Cars are breaking down and paint's chipping off and vacuum cleaners, the bags are getting filled up and you have to change them. Did you see anything today? Any signs that things are changing for yourself in your practice? Just whatever comes to mind, yeah.
Why would you say that that's not the practice? No, yeah. Okay, your outdoor practice. See, there's no outdoor or indoor practice. There's only one practice. Awareness from moment to moment. So anyway, that's your meadow's gone. Anyone else see anything today in there, here, wherever? Just whatever comes to mind. So it's permanent for you. You had a good, solid day. It's really I'm happy to hear it. Yeah. Scattered. Concentration. How is that impermanent? Excuse me? How is that impermanent? Well, about uh, three o'clock, it was, everything was just hot and, and uh, you know, very, very loose. Mm-hmm. Six o'clock, it was really steady. Mm-hmm. I got upset at three o'clock, six o'clock, I felt great. That's the way it goes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Anyone else? Just the simple instances of coming and going. Yeah. In uh, breathing, in permanence, in breathing, mm-hmm. the breath, one breath, in and then it's gone, forever. Anyone have any trivial examples? That's my specialty. One of the things that um, there is insight meditation, we've been using the term here for a while, and it's used in a common sense way a lot. In other words, insight is a perfectly good English word, seeing into, and many of us have been saying to each other in interviews and groups, having an insight into this and insight into that. And that's all a, a certainly a good use of the term. But there's also a, a more, a somewhat more technical use of vipassana, which means one of its main meanings is insight into impermanence. And from that, uh, derive the unsatisfactoriness that we talked about the other night, largely having to do with everything changing and us developing fixations in the midst of all of that and a somewhat different view of what a person is. 
If you understand impermanence, it all comes out of that. So one of the central meanings of this practice that we've been doing is seeing into the way things are, and the way things are is that they constantly change. Just that fact. Now, that fact has tremendously profound implications. Let me read you a couple of things from a very different tradition. This one is from the Gospel, according to Matthew. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust consumes and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And from the Jewish tradition, all flesh is as grass and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Very eloquent statements of what we're doing here. Now the impermanence, the process is going on whether we heard about it or not. It doesn't care. To back off for a moment, we'll get to the implications of quotes like this and our own practice. One way to look at what's happening and why it's considered so important to gain insight into this very basic process is that it just keeps happening. This is a a basic law. And to the degree to which our living is in accordance with this law, there's the possibility for harmony, for fulfillment, for freedom. The degree to which we're out of step with this law, there's sorrow. In other words, in a universe that's constantly in change, if we're not, if our minds and our actions are not calibrated with that, that being out of step has colossal implications. Just think of it this way. A very simple example, and one that's helped me a lot. Let's say you're dancing to music. Those, one of those moments when you really connect with a particular kind of music that's playing. And you might be connected with the partner that you're dancing with. You're in tune with your body. And then suddenly the music changes. Now, if you keep dancing to the same music, but a new cassette is put on, it won't work. It's not fulfilling. Something is off. And you might say, well, why am I happy now? I'm doing just what I was doing two seconds ago. Yeah, but everything has changed. The conditions have changed. Yeah, but why aren't I happy now? I was doing it two minutes before. Everything was all right. It was great. I know, but you see, it's different now. And this goes on again and again and again. So some of the uh, reasons why a sensitivity, a growing sensitivity to this basic process is so practical is because the degree to which we're not sensitive to it, we bring suffering down upon ourselves over and over and over again. Because the law is unrelenting. It just keeps going. Phenomena present themselves to us. They point to their characteristics and then they vanish. You know, it's like, look, you see, I'm here and now I'm gone. Sounds, smells, everything is doing that. So one aspect of our practice 
is starting to become attuned to that basic process. The process is not going to go away. Now, sometimes there's a coloration added to it. It's colored in the direction of, um, and to some degree perhaps pointed to in these quotes, that life is, in a sense, very difficult or unbearable because all formations are breaking up. Everything is changing. Another way of putting it is that ultimately we're going to die. But even before this physical body dies, things keep not being there long enough for us to derive any fulfillment or real fulfillment from them. And we keep hoping that they will be, and they keep not being. This can lead to an attitude, a kind of dualistic attitude, that the world is bad, God is good, enlightenment is good. We have to get away from it. And that's one approach. That can then lead to a monastic strategy to deal with that, to avoid these situations. But of course, impermanence uh, has no bias. It's everywhere. It's even in the monastery. And what that is saying, what these quotes, for example, as I understand them, are saying, is that there is no ultimate fulfillment. In the, let's say if you put your treasure where rust consume or where moths land or thieves can enter, that means it's impermanent. If you invest your total energy or t- total hope for fulfillment in a realm that is changing, you're doomed to suffer. For example, as human beings, we all are that way. I mean, we're, our process is that we're in, the, in a state of constant change. We are impermanent. And there's no ultimate fulfillment in impermanence, and yet we seek for other beings, for example, who are impermanent, and we seek that fulfillment from them. How can that work? They're the same as us. Or we seek it in situations or jobs or anything. Now, this is not to say don't have relationships, don't have a good job, don't have a beautiful home, etc. The problem is not in the objects of the world which do change, which do decay, which do get rusty. Paint does get chipped. Bridges and shoes, everything wears out. That happens. If we expect ultimate fulfillment from those realms, we're going to be in for very deep disappointment. Time and time again, perhaps you've already seen that. So it's not so much discarding the realm, the, let's say the, the joys that are possible in what is, in quotes, worldly life. I don't really, that distinction doesn't mean very much to me anymore. Let's say sacred and profane or those kinds of dichotomies. To me, there's only one reality. The real um, question is how we relate to it. In other words, if, we are, if we're attuned, if we begin to see that everything is changing, and if in some way our behavior is coordinated with that, then we're in step with the music. We're really moving with it. And it isn't necessarily suffering. As we're able to be with someone, for example, to enjoy a meal fully, wholeheartedly, in an undivided way. And when the meal is over, the meal is over. Also, not to expect ultimate fulfillment from a meal, because it's not there. We're looking in the wrong place. Can't possibly do that job. Or in a relationship. What I'm suggesting is not, I'm not advocating that we don't get into relationships. Actually, I think the quality of relationships can improve dramatically 
to the degree to which we honor this law, if you, if you see it that way, if it's real to you. Because again, just as we do it with food, we do it with, our, with a partner. We expect so much from the partner. We load them with some kind of an ultimate responsibility for our happiness. And they can't possibly do that for us. Which is not to say that there can't be great richness and fulfillment and joy in relationship. But if we expect our life to be, if we expect salvation from another person, we're looking in the wrong place. It's not going to happen that way. Now, if we don't, if we are reasonable, if we understand this is a human being, I'm a human being, this is food, that's a car, this is a vacuum cleaner, and understand that all these uh, processes are unfolding in their own lawful way, it's possible to relate to them in a sane, intelligent manner so that we're able to relate to the world and use the world, not exploit, use the world with much less or in many cases no suffering. The impermanence, in the, at least in the latter-day Buddhist teachings, have mainly emphasized what you might call the negative side. The negative side being, my goodness, all these things are changing. So this world is something we have to get away from. Impermanence is basically a very harsh fact, a very painful fact that all formations are breaking up. That's the way it's put in the Buddhist texts very often. Everything is breaking up. And that's one side of it. It's true. These formations are endlessly becoming something else, the transformation that was referred to. But the other side of it, which can be overlooked, is that also is what makes certain things so precious. Or is the fact that they are not going to be here forever. In fact, they might even be here just for a moment. Like just a a drink of cold water on a hot day. It doesn't have to last forever. You know, it's precious at that moment because it's needed. There's thirst. The water comes along. And there's gratitude that comes out of that. Or is this a proper relationship to it? Understanding that our life, our physical life as we know it, is finite, needn't be a cause for despair. And certainly, if we are working in Dharma, quite the contrary. In other words, to talk about impermanence, and by extension that means that we're talking about death, our own, can be a very negative thing to do. It can be very uh, discouraging and destructive for people. It can make, uh, drive people to despair, despondency. But when it's in the context of Dharma, it's very different. The point of a talk like this, if there is any point, I hope for you, for me, one is the recognition of this lawfulness to see if it's true. Now, it's the the mere uh, intellectual acknowledgement of it. Let's say you all agree with me. I'd be surprised if you didn't agree with the fact that everything's impermanent. Because everyone agrees with that. Atheists, God-fearing people, everyone can see that. The very agreement with it, the very obviousness of it, the very obstinate familiarity of it, because it's so obvious, prevents us from really understanding what it is, not merely from a cerebral point of view, but experientially. It's so obviously true. Oh, yeah, he's right. Yeah. 
that isn't what transforms us and that isn't what enables us to live more harmoniously in the world. It's a different kind of knowing. In other words, the universe is throwing out this teaching and we as disciples of this teaching uh, can learn it at varying depths. And also, it can have varying either a kind of partial fragmented exposure or a more comprehensive and whole approach to it. So that there is a poignancy to impermanence. There is a poignancy to beautiful flowers withering and beautiful people dying and a delicious meal coming to an end. However, if our practice includes learning the practice of non-attachment, non-attachment is not detachment. In other words, it's, it's being, if, if uh, a good meal comes our way or if a, an enjoyable companion comes our way, being able to enjoy it with awareness. The problem comes in that there is no awareness. Without awareness, it becomes attachment clinging, suffering. So the challenge in our learning is, can we learn how to, to be with things when we have them, fully and wholeheartedly, and when they're gone, to be able to do without them, to move to the next. That means living in a real world. I mean, a world that is actually happening from moment to moment. Not a world cluttered up with the residue of memories and unfulfilled aspirations, fantasies, compensations. So it's, a, it's more directly experienced. Um, let me bring it closer. Let's land on our practice. Take even limited to the sitting practice. But of course it's not at all. What would it mean to really learn about impermanence if it's being taught and it's at huge levels of whole civilizations and galaxies. And it's at incredibly microscopic levels. If you follow your abdomen or the breath at the nose, but let's say I work more with the abdomen, there's a rising and a falling motion. Say a surging of the abdomen. And it seems like it's one motion. But as the mind becomes very, very quiet, you can see that it's a a combination of surgings, let's say, let's say on the rising motion, there might be five or six of them. It's more of a composite of, let's say, rising sub one, two, three, four, five, and six. That's masked by the continuity. In other words, it's happening so quickly, the arising and passing away, that it seems as if it's one event, but that one event is really, at a more microscopic level, six events. And as you get quieter, it becomes even more than that until it's clear there's no form to the abdomen that's only at one level. And it's something that can be verified in our own practice. It happens. Many people have already experienced this. Same on the falling. Now, the continuity that masks this rapidity of change so that you can really see what this world is made of and the transformation mainly comes when we see what we are made of. I mean, if your reflections on impermanence are all out there, I don't think that's going to change you so much or facilitate some of what's being suggested here. It seems to be essential, and that may be one of the great, if not the greatest, contributions of the Buddha. 
Everyone has talked about impermanence, without exception. The vanity of each generation and thinking that's going to last forever. What's unique in this particular practice is that the teaching was transferred to a very practical laboratory, being our mind and body, and a very simple laboratory uh, procedure was provided for us so that we could confirm it in our own mind and body. The confirmation not being something out there, but something that is uh, deeply grasped. The fact of it. And this is what's hard to communicate with words. It's absorbed. The truth of impermanence is absorbed. If it's just mental, it does not have very much potency. It may be fulfilling and satisfying. It fills up your biocomputer. It's in memory and you may even transmit it to someone else. But not a whole lot has happened. It may help a bit. The kind of, it, uh, this is what we're now beginning to talk about is understanding, standing under, or uh, the mind becomes soaked in this truth, soaked in it. Or images that have helped me is you totally chew it and digest it so that the truth of impermanence is part of you. Now, I found in attempting to teach this that very often people have a hard time hearing it. They kind of say, I hear what you're saying, you know, isn't there anything else? I already know about impermanence. Let me emphasize it for the following reason. The kind of learning that goes on that that is of any help at all requires constant, sensitive, delicate, and yet strenuous attention. So that over a period of time, more and more, it's, it's something like this. We are, we've, we are so um, out of step with the truth of this law of impermanence. As we are so deluded, our life is so deluded that this truth can present its times, itself a million times in a minute and we don't get it. In other words, the fact is presenting itself. We don't get it. Presenting itself. We don't get it. And what we're attempting to do in Dharma practice is to get it. To really get it. And, and the getting of it is an inner transformation of being. It's not out there, over here. It's something that uh, you see. And, and take the simple breath, just a very humble thing. The breath arises and passes away, and it rises and passes away, and it arises and passes away. That fact is being presented. We are seeing it. And it takes a while for the real implications to hit home. That there's nothing solid, and it's not limited to the breath, as you know. An analogy that might help would be a movie. You know, when you look at a theater, you look at a film, it looks like there are these solid things going on. In the meantime, it's a series of just rapid stills. In other words, uh, one following the other. What, what makes it seem as if there's something solid is the continuity, the rapid continuity. It masks the impermanence. Here's what I'm talking about. You might say, oh, I'm tired. And if you look carefully at tiredness, you'll see the tiredness may be made up of t- six tirednesses. But when we're not looking carefully, it seems like there's a gloss, just tired or pain. 
When you look at pain, it's like uh, an instantaneous arising of something that we call pain and it's also gone. And then totally separate from that, another one, and then another one, and then another one. They're discrete and separate from each other. And they're happening at such a rapid pace that it looks as if something is solid. And so we believe that and we live as if that's so. And then, of course, we pay dearly. Because that isn't the way the world is. It never was and it doesn't look like it ever will be. Now, I'm not saying that the end or the goal of practice is this microscopic noting. This is one practice approach to really drive home that forms are not exactly what you think they are. And what can come out of this observation is tremendous equanimity and some of the uh, potency that our attachments have to forms uh, melting away. When we start to see that this form that we thought was so solid When we look at it closely, it isn't as solid as we thought. Well, maybe from that point on, it will never be the same. Do you know, uh, there's a form of French art, uh, uh, pointillism, points. If you stand away back and you look at the uh, painting, it looks like um, a number of couples, you know, at a Sunday in the park, you know. And you can see everything's very nice. And as you get closer and closer, you can see that it's a lot of points. Each point is a different color. And as you get really close, no more couples. There's nothing there. Just a bunch of points. The truth is that from a certain point of view, a very profound point of view, there's no change. There is no impermanence. Because nothing is to change. There is everything, uh, whatever you want to talk to, my arm. Well, as the units get smaller and smaller and smaller, finally, there's nothing that you can point to and say, that's an abiding entity which will then change because... I don't know. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) Now, these—it's—it's it's not saying that that is the the really real level, and that we're walking around. Oh, this is all. This is not an arm. It's an arm, and it's not an arm. In other words, in fact, a misunderstanding of this law, of this, these teachings, can be very destructive. It can lead to a kind of nihilism. I want to safeguard, prevent that saying, oh yeah, it's all just bullshit and nonsense and let's just forget it's all crap. I'm not saying that at all. It's it's a little like this. You you could see something, it has a certain uh, level of reality when you see it with the naked eye. Then you bring an electronic microscope to it and you can see something else. Now, which is the true reality? Well, depending on where your perception is, that's what's true. Now, if once you can see... um, that what seems to be a solid, and here now we're getting closer and closer to home, when we look at what we think of as being me, Larry, or whatever it is you think, whatever it is you think you are, and I think what is better than who, who assumes already there's something? What? What am I? When you're closer and closer, if this law is operating, you'll see that try to grab onto something and point to find yourself. It's unfindable. The self is unfindable. Point at anything. You know, try it out. Check it in your your meditation. And say, there I am. Sure, for that moment, and then it's gone. Some conclusion, some verbal conclusion about the kind of person that you are or the kind of person you used to be, the kind of person that you're going to be. Those, we don't have too many, we keep doing that all day long. 
I used to be, but now I am. But if I practice, I'll be that way. And if I eat this way, I'll be that way. And if I don't eat, I'll be that way. And these images and verbal and pictorial conclusions come up over and over and over again. And we fasten on to them and perhaps make one stand for the whole. So you might have a conclusion about yourself, and of course we do it to others as well, that I'm a such and such. But when you look carefully at the mind, as we've been doing day in and day out, from early morning to late at night, um, if you can find this identity that everyone's talking about, help me out, because I can't. Now, I know that there's a very strong bias in believing that there is. But, if you look, but actually look. This is not a theory or a speculation. What you find is simple things stand for a much more complex whole. In other words, there's a process of coming and going, verbal uh, and visual conclusions about ourselves, statements about who we are, that endlessly alternate and contradict each other. And we may pick a few choice snapshots out and say, this is who we are. And maybe present ourselves that way. And then other people perhaps take it that way. And then a fictitious exchanges are going on because it's much more complex. It's something like this. You know, various graduations? Or let's say you go to a photographer's studio and you look and uh, there are usually four or five samples, you know, downstairs to kind of get you to go in. Uh, Weddings, graduations, bar mitzvahs, all that, you know. And here are all these incredibly beautiful people with the white teeth and a nice smile, you know, perfect. There isn't no pimples, no little mole, nothing. Each person is just, oh, just great. Okay, and we get these, so, so if we look at it, there's like a, a, a split second of time, a snapshot is taken. In other words, that's one frame. And maybe it's doctored up a little bit. But let's even forgetting about that. Let's say it catches you at a happy frame, that one split second. Graduation day, how, how happy I am to be getting out of here. You know, There it is, and there's this wonderful, happy person. And then it gets put into a wallet and on the piano and handed out to relatives. And that stands for you. But the truth is you haven't cleaned your teeth in about two years, you know. <laughs> now, that one image stands for the endless variety of different uh, changes that even on the physical level that the face is going through. I mean, the face is going through a change from second to second. It's, you know, in terms of what mood you're in, in terms of nourishment, in terms of the climate, in terms of how much sleep you need, etc. Which face is the real face? Okay, it's too complicated, so we just fasten on one, that one. Or going into a movie. You know, it's the same principle. They put out two or three samples of what the movie is, usually sex and violence. And you go in and it's maybe three seconds of sex and ten seconds of violence, and maybe the rest of it is something else. Usually not. But it's not necessarily representative of what, what the whole film is. Now, as you, if you go to a whole film and look at it carefully, you see that it bears very little re- relevance to, let's say, the promise on the billboard. When you start looking closely at yourself, what you may find is that there's no, nothing that you can point to and say, there I am. Now, that means the principle of impermanence is not now starting to come closer to home. Now, wait a minute, it's okay to say that this place used to be a private uh, place and then it was a Catholic place and a Buddhist place and then it's going to be a movie house. 
but at least I'm solid, the one who's here doing it. Well, I don't know. It seems like there's no place to step out of. It's just an ocean of impermanence. Wherever, you, wherever in quotes you look, there it is, and the looker is too. Now, that can be a very frightening stage in practice for people. Even hearing it on a, a conceptual level, and hearing it on a conceptual level, and I think often many times, can be very helpful in kind of softening the mind, in preparing it for actual receptivity, for absorbing the truth of it. Or is the absorbing of it, it's an actual absorbing of it. Sometimes it's a dramatic happening. Oh, that's what it is. Really grasping something. Okay. Hearing it can sometimes uh, throw people into a very despondent direction. At that point, usually they've forgotten the full context of Dharma practice, what this work is about. At a certain point, though, it's uh, extremely liberating, even a little tiny tongue taste of this insight, uh, just seeing that, uh, oh, you know, phrases that are used around here, there's nobody home, and yet we behave clearly as if there's somebody home all the time. But even a glimpse of the fact that uh, what it is that we're protecting with such fervor is questionable. I mean, what is that that we're protecting? It seems like an abiding entity, really solid. You know, that picture on the piano or in your wallet. And yet when you look closely, you can't grab it. And that can relieve you of a lot of burdens of trying to maintain it, enhance it, dress it up, get it massaged, make it look attractive, make it sound intelligent, and all the things that we're laboriously doing in the service of that pseudo-entity. Okay, that can be liberating. And what seems to be most helpful is some balance between understanding, it's not that there's nobody home, it's there is some kind of a repetitive pattern. There's something recognizable about each one's, one of us, something recurrent. Or we wouldn't know each other. I mean, if we were that variable, it's not random. You know, we'd walk, you know, you'd see somebody in the morning and then in the afternoon you go past them, you wouldn't recognize them because it's just all random. You know, the body is changing, the eyes are changing, image, the mind is sits, you start talking to them, they don't remember anything you said in the morning. Uh, and uh, it would just be crazy. So it has more patterning than that. There are certain stylistic ways in which these uh, fluctuating elements seem to recombine over and over again. And it's not solid, but it's recognizable so that we know that that's you and I'm me. And on a conventional level of reality, uh, that's very important so that we can relate to each other and it's reasonably harmonious. We know who we are. But spiritual work is going deeper than that level. It's helpful to have that level intact. The various forms of therapies that exist are extremely important in enabling that relative level to be intact. As someone uh, put it, and I think very well, you have to become a somebody before you can become a nobody. But it's not really either or. Like now I'm a somebody, now I'm a nobody. This relative level is unfolding. It has a certain pattern quality to it. It's just not quite what we think it is. It's not that it's 
unreal illusion, it's not real in quite the way in which we think it's real. And so we can express ourselves through our particular personality and use it and enjoy it. What other choice do we have? It's not as if, let's say, if there's a taste of of freedom or enlightenment, that it's all obliterated and we're just an empty, you know, a vacuum. Our differences still remain. I spent two weeks in Korea once. There was a, a, a conference of all the Zen masters in Korea and I was a aide to one of them. And being around these people, and many of them were quite extraordinary, and you couldn't find any two who were the same. I mean, you know, one was loud and raucous and joking all the time, and the other was very refined and quiet, and and a third one. They were all very different sizes, shapes, and food preferences, and physical, everything. And yet, there was something that you could feel, at least with some of them, a lot of them, which is this freedom. They seemed to be having a good time. How many people um, were here two weeks ago, Friday, in order to start this retreat at the very beginning. Anyone? Okay. In terms of new people, uh, one person. So most of you came from at least Sunday on, two weeks ago. There have been a number of requests today to... um, open up the whole issue of how to apply this practice in daily life since uh, we'll be going back to most of us where we came from uh, tomorrow. And of course this topic is always interesting, interesting to people at the end of a retreat. And I often feel the energy in back of it is wanting something special for daily life. You know, some, there's got to be more than this. We're going back into the, these crazy conditions that we came from and what is it that we do out there? I mean, we know what we do here. What do we do out there? Same. Or is this only daily life? This is daily life. If you can show me some place that isn't daily life, I'd like to see it. There's no way to escape daily life. I mean, we can pretend, you know, that we have, we have a nice stage set and we create an atmosphere that this is whatever it is we create, some dramaturgical uh, innovation. And this one has been going on for a long time, thousands of years. This one is that we're pretending we're at a retreat center and that we have a, something called a retreat going on. But is it really a retreat? I mean, is it, what is it we're retreating from? I mean, you've had to face your mind. and Maybe it should be called an attack. You know, I'm going to IMS for a two-week attack. Or a two-week assault. To be uh, bombarded for two weeks. Um, an escape. Maybe this is an escape. Was it an escape? I mean, if you were really doing it, did you find it an escape? Didn't you still have to go to the bathroom here? Or is it different? Wash, eat, get dressed, get undressed. People, even with the convention that we have of averted eye gaze, didn't people affect you anyway? Did you have reactions to one person or another, even though we're walking this way and sometimes looking very intent and mindful and holy? 
we still get annoyed. You know, if the person has two different socks on, we see that. Two different colors. So, I don't know, it seems as if we want a special technique and part of that wanting, I don't mean to mock it because I know um, that it's the difficulty of living out there, in quotes, that has driven us here, in here, in quotes. And perhaps we've gotten hurt. I have to talk this way, out there. Uh, we've gotten hurt or of having a difficult time, let's say, in the world of relationships or jobs, where to live, indecision, conflict, confusion, separation. And so we come here, and in some ways it is quite redeeming to be here. I mean, the environment is, in some ways, dramatically simplified. And I would say, overall, most of us are trying to make this a harmonious, loving place to be in. So in some ways, you don't get a hard time the way you do out in places other than here. And so now we're going back to where we got wounded. You know, they, uh, during uh, World War II, there's a common, common stories of so many people uh, wanted to get out of combat and would talk about needing medical care that the uh, medical tents were overloaded and they couldn't treat them. Some were legitimate, of course, but often what it would be is you'd go in one end of the tent and there'd be a a truck waiting on the other end. You'd go out the other end and be taken right back to where you came from. But at least you had the feeling that you were looked at by a doctor or a nurse or someone for a few minutes. And so now we have to go back and perhaps what we're going back to we perceive as formidable. So we want some nuclear meditative technique to, to deal with it. Like closing off one nostril and one eye and uh, holding the abdomen fixed while tilting the head up at a 90 degree angle. And do that five times a day at certain times. Not before, not later. Special diet. And we have this everyday mind with us, wherever we go. The, every, the, the everyday mind is simply our mind. The mind that we brought here, we're taking it away from here. You know, that just as it is, keeps changing. And our practice, it, in its essence, is keeping up with this everyday mind. Seeing the everyday mind as it enters into the work situation, into relationship, and seeing how it handles itself. Um, I know some of you are rather new to these retreats and so there, there are a certain level of uh, basic information that I, I feel I should cover to make sure that we do touch upon it and then um, explore some of these other issues and have enough time for you to ask questions if we've missed some things. I suppose one way to put it is that uh, when you leave here, it would be nice if you can uh, replicate as much of this environment as you can when it's appropriate, as kind of miniaturized IMS in your bedroom or your, let's say you set aside a part of your house. 
to do meditation and you do it a certain number of, say, once or twice a day, that's pretty clear that that's helpful. Everyone finds that helpful. That is, if you can establish some kind of regular practice. And it's often helpful if it's in the same place. So you imbue that place with a certain stillness or this is where meditation goes on. If you do that, if you come to the place enough, then it becomes uh, invested with this stillness. And when you come into that place, then it helps you. You create the stillness, you create the, the space, and then you have it to use to facilitate being quiet. If you can have your own room, that's nice. If not, some part of the house, someplace. And regularly, has been found by most of us to be more helpful than sporadically. It means ideally every day, find some time to enter into silence and be with yourself. Uh, it's not a luxury. If you have to get up earlier, then get up earlier. Just sit quietly and be with yourself at least once a day and let that grow. I don't know how long you should do it because it's, it varies from person to person. If you can, twice a day, like to begin the day, the morning is good, and then again in the evening. Just to be with yourself and to hear the mind and the body in an unadorned way, just allowing the mind and body to tell you what it has to tell you. And if you can find a group to sit with or support, that's helpful. Or even one person, one friend, or someone else who does this practice meet once a week. Some people have done that and it's been helpful. Just to sit together, to reinforce this until it's strong enough for you. But it's not that that's a crutch, although it may be a support in that sense for a while. There's something uh, very beautiful about practicing together. Practicing alone is very beautiful and practicing together is, both. Life is both together and alone. And it's good if we can be comfortable alone and together. You know that just sitting in silence together for two weeks, even though we haven't talked to one another, or you know, more, let's say, Corrado and I, but all of us, something goes on. There's a certain um, almost invisible bond that's created because we're all doing it together, day in and day out. You look up and there's that person again, who you don't even know, still doing it. And so you don't pack your bags and leave. I mean, if Corrado and I still do it, that doesn't count. You know. And if you can come to retreats, of course. If you can set aside time periodically, perhaps once a week, an afternoon or a morning when you can protect it, and have a mini-retreat in your home using some kind of schedule. Especially if you're new at this, it's probably wise to, to create a schedule and do sitting and walking or some yoga. Or if it's time to clean the house, let's say you have set aside a couple of hours to clean the house, do it mindfully. Or it's right from the beginning, pause and form the intention to do the whole thing as a meditation cleaning the floors, sweeping, whatever it is you have to do, taking out the garbage. Okay, but now in a more general sense, uh, what I'm suggesting now is what was suggested on the first evening when we got together. 
and that is the frame of reference for the practice, is how we keep our mind from moment to moment, not any particular posture or place. In in that sense, the essence of the practice is formless. There's no special place that it that has a monopoly on wisdom. None at all. Now, special places like this are created to develop the strength, to help develop the strength to be able to see that. To be able to see that it's possible to learn wherever you are, to develop some composure in the midst of change and chaos. So, special situations like this are are valuable and have a place and they can accomplish certain things and they can't accomplish other things. In some ways, when you sit, and especially more and more as your posture becomes, as the body becomes comfortable and stable, and as you do it, the more and more that happens, you can go deeper and wider because the sitting posture is very simple. It's simplified. You don't have to eat. There's no talking. You don't use your hands. You don't have a job. And you can't get into trouble in a relationship because you just, you're safe at least while you're on the cushion. Keeps you out of, keeps you out of trouble. And a lot can be learned from that simplified situation of just a solitary person intently focusing on what is happening at that moment, whether it be the breath or anything else. It's an ingenious creation, extraordinarily helpful. But my own experience has been and uh, with my own life and observing that if you think that you can sit your way through every problem that you have, uh, good luck. That's all I can say. My best to you. I've seen uh, enough people now, some of them called you know, high names in spiritual circles who've uh, passed all kinds of, let's say, tests, have gotten certified at certain levels of attainment based on uh, depth of sitting and fall flat on their face. They're mostly men, entirely men. <laughs> fall flat on their face as soon as women entered the situation because they had had, that wasn't part of their training. These were Orientals. Or it's extremely well trained according to a certain model in, let's say, various Oriental countries. And there's a certain confidence that gets shattered or at least questioned. I mean, because a few have been honest, I've been able to talk to them. I'm not saying the others aren't. I mean, I've been able to speak to a few. And what it is, is that they, they're often not at all prepared for the situation that we have here. They were monks or the equivalent, might as well be. And so it seems as if each situation has to, has its, has its own, has to be mastered on its own ground. For example, in some of the Zen traditions, if you pass certain koans or enigmatic, enigmatic uh, topics that you can struggle with for years, and there are hundreds of them, you move through them. And when you move through enough of them and certain some of them are more complex than others, uh, a certain level of attainment is said to exist. And there's no question that it does. I mean, it's, it's a powerful tool. 
but that doesn't necessarily stand for the transferability of that attainment, or it doesn't guarantee the transferability of that attainment to another situation like work in an office or a factory or a school or a hospital or family life or relationship. It doesn't seem to. I mean, it can help a lot. So it seems obvious that we have to have a practice that embraces everything that we do right from the start. And so the frame of reference, at least for me, is not anything less than life itself. Sometimes I feel the word practice ought to be discarded. And it's not that we're practicing, you know, it's we're living, we're learning how to live. Are we practicing to learn how to live? Maybe, maybe some of it is like that. But that's life too. In other words, if you can view life as just a homogeneous, undivided, all-pervasive thing. And wherever we are, there it is, life again. And if you have that frame of reference, you can avoid some of the problems of being highly motivated to sit or to go to retreats because that's officially spiritual and captivates our attention. We see statues of the Buddha and the Bodhisattvas in museums. We don't see anyone, statues of people vacuuming or making love in the museum. I mean, if so, it's not a Buddhist, you know, it's not a Buddhist icon. So it's all too natural for the mind to get fixated on that one situation. It's featured and it comes to stand for the whole thing. But it isn't the whole thing. It's sitting. And then you get up and there's walking and there's lying down and there's standing. And we go through those all day long and all night long. And so the attitude, it seems to me, is more important than any particular techniques in your going home. And that is if you can see... um, that if you, want, if you love this practice or you see the beginnings of potential in it, view it as something whole, not as, not as a fragmented kind of activity. And it has to do with scrutinizing our entire life, seeing how we live. And spending time sitting and in places like IMS is invaluable in doing that. But it is not our entire life. It is one fragment of our life. So, a few suggestions that I found helpful. When you get back, in addition to the sitting, begin to take note of of various compartments or aspects of life. Uh, Notice if there is weakness there, if special care and attention is needed. Some, I don't know if I'll hit on everything, but a few, some of the major ones. Say, our work life. Is that intact? Do we know what we want to do? If we don't, are we setting about finding out? Have we reflected on what it means to work? And do we have to... What is our job on this planet? I'll put it in a bigger perspective. Not just want to add work level of work, but what is our job on this planet? Take it even deeper. What is our true job? And if that isn't resolved, continuing to sweep it under the rug uh, drains a lot of energy. There's a lot of chaos and anxiety 
that is not perhaps being acknowledged and it affects the practice. It is the practice. There's no way to get away from it. And so if that area is not uh, reasonably fulfilling for you, then, I mean, it's not that you have to be condemned. It's that inquire, investigate, because unless you're independently wealthy. It's, we all have to face that one. Work. We have to pay for our food, our board. We have to live. We have to survive. And in what way are we doing that? Is it a way, in assuming that you have a job, is it a way that brings suffering into the world more? Is your job, what is it doing? What does your particular work contribute? Question it, scrutinize it, if you really want to live a meditative life. Does the particular work uh, enhance life on the planet? Or does it contribute to that which you're trying to get away from and come here to do that? Take a look at your work life or the absence of it. Talking, speech. Tremendous power when we, these lips start flapping and these sounds come out. Uh, possibilities for hurting people tremendously and also for healing, harmonizing. How do we use speech? How do we find this out? It's, an, it's bringing the practice right into wherever we are. See, the key is the awareness and the willingness to learn. It's not... Uh, sometimes people really think that it's concentrating on the breath. As beautiful as that is and as valuable as it is and as much as that helps us do what I'm talking about. I mean, the refinement of mind that's, de- that's developed on the breath can help you dramatically to do some of the things I'm suggesting. Look at your work life. Become more sensitive to speech, etc. But sometimes we get a misplaced sense of satisfaction because there can be great ecstasy and peace in, the, in just being with the breath that uh, we get lost in it. Someone once came and, who I hadn't seen in quite a while and he couldn't help but brag. This was someone I hadn't seen for four or five years and we had practiced together. And he was telling me how he could sit for two, three, how many hours did I want him to without missing a breath? I mean, that's what he had to say about himself. And my own feeling was that maybe we can get him a job in the circus. You know? <laughs> in other words, I don't know if that necessarily uh, leads to anything. What it says is the person can keep their mind concentrated for three hours. Or a talent show, you know, they... So in bringing awareness right into life, maybe uh, to, to lump a lot of this together, so I, I do want to have time for you to ask questions. One major area of life that we have to take into account is personal integrity. Um, words like morality and ethics are, have a bad press now. You just mention the word and everyone falls asleep or makes for the nearest exit. If I say that we're going to have a talk on ethics, what would that make you feel like? you know, or morality, even worse, or I don't know, a tie. Ethics, I think, is archaic. No one even uses the term anymore. But the issues can't be escaped. It has to do with personal integrity. Just the way in which we live our life, how we treat people, how we treat all creatures, levels of honesty and 
consideration in all relationships, speech, everything we do, business. If personal integrity, the level of personal integrity is defective, if there's lying, manipulation, exploitation going on in our life, is it realistic to think that there can be any real depth in, in any meditative work? I don't think so. I mean, that's a bare minimum, a foundation that your, our ordinary life is reasonable. A minimum in, in the sense of loose ends. That we're not causing a tremendous amount of pain for other people and then the retaliation that comes from that. So I would look at that. Just to take a, a very soft but sustained look. Is, um, what is that for you? If it's relationship... And if you're in a relationship, I would say the first step in applying this practice is at least temporarily to throw away all the theories and ideologies you have as to what a relationship should be, because we have a lot of them. New ones coming in every generation. And maybe they're an improvement over the one before, but then they have their uh, place where they become extreme and are often and then we need another one to correct for that one. And it just goes on and on. Then we have experts who tell us what a good relationship should be. And I'm not saying there isn't something to be learned from that. And of course, much of it is an extension of personal integrity into uh, the use of sexual energy and in general, coming together. But I think step number one would be just the most simple and innocent um, sense of just what is my relationship. If you're in a relationship, just what is actually happening? What do we do? What are, this word relationship, it's so charged now. And so much uh, hurt has come from it and in it. And the promise and sometimes the actuality of so much pleasure and love. At times it's almost as if men were here to drive women crazy and women were put here to drive men crazy. Um, Surely, I mean, there must be a, a better way to live than that. But it seems like step number one is to throw away, at least temporarily, all the ideas as to what you think a good relationship should be. And if you're in a relationship, to try to see what is it? What, what happens when we're together? Just like the practice. Just bring a, a real uh, simple mind. What is this? What is happening? And ideally share that with your partner. Both people working together to understand what it is that they're creating together. Both taking full responsibility to help each other um, with what's happening. If you're not in a relationship, examining the state of loneliness if you are lonely. Trying to understand your present condition. Um, If you're spending all your time while alone, longing for a relationship, pining for a relationship, but not examining yourself, uh, that's going to perpetuate probably something that doesn't need to be perpetuated. Because there isn't much seeing going on, there isn't much learning going on. So whatever our situation, whether we're alone or together, step number one is just quite simply to take stock of it, to scrutinize it. What is it? What is happening? Just very openly, lovingly, and in as unbiased a way as possible. Giving yourself 
ideally, unqualified freedom to look. Unqualified freedom to, uh, to see what it is. And to share that with people, to reflect on it. The physical body is another important area. It's not that you have to become um, fruitarians or mucus, mucusless diet or, you know, not any particular system, but some reasonable attention to the body and its needs. Often we betray the body. It's a very beautiful instrument. And just a little care and attention enables it to, to function with some energy, with some joy, and this is an enormous advantage in spiritual work. Spiritual work is arduous. Have you noticed? It's very hard work. Actually, anything worthwhile is. Tell me something else. You know, you want to be a dancer, or you want to be a good mother, or you want to be a baseball. What? Anything. Doesn't it take a lot of hard work? And isn't it an advantage if there is stamina and energy? And so begin to look at how you waste energy on the level of the body in terms of diet, in terms of just simple basics. Exercise, sleep. Begin to learn the needs of your body. How much sleep does your body need? How much and what kinds of food does your body need? How much exercise does your body seem to uh, flourish when when it gets it? And you can read books by experts. Some of, some of it is, can be helpful. But have your starting point, I feel, in your own experience of your body and study cause and effect, as we mentioned in the talk on, on contemplative eating. And just a little bit more care and attention can go a long way in terms of bringing the body into some reasonable shape so that it's a friend and an ally in general in living life and in particular in regard to this work. Money. It's a, a rare person who can manage that energy, sexual energy, monetary energy. It's a rare person who either is on one extreme or the other, most people seem to be, either uh, totally cut off from it or rolling in it, either that's money or sex. <laughs> So either we're celibate or it's tantra, you know. What seems to be rare, and I think is possible, particularly in this practice, take sexual energy for the moment, is how, to learn how to use sexual energy correctly. Meaning, so it doesn't harm people, it doesn't harm ourselves and others. It's a beautiful energy, it's here, it's been given to us. It's part of nature. But how to use it? learn how to use it in a, a normal way and there's a healthy respect for it without having to necessarily make it the be-all and end-all in life because I don't think it will work. It isn't. Learning how to see its relationship to affection, to personal integrity, seeing if you're really extreme in one direction or another. If there's some care and attention that's called for, some little extra work that's needed with awareness. 
in this realm. Same with money. The anxiety that we have around money, the earning of it, the spending of it, the sharing of it. I could go on, but, you know, we don't... In other words, it's take a really simple, honest look at how you are actually living your life. Now, that is not outside the scope of meditation if it's done with awareness and the sensitivity of learning. And the sitting practice and retreats can help enormously in that. Then again, the sitting practice and retreats can be misused. After all, there was what I just suggested, probably it sounds plausible and worthwhile to you. I mean, I hope it does. But perhaps there's another part of the mind that hears that and says, he's got to be kidding. I mean, it sounds exhausting. You know, I just want to just keep my little old lazy life, you know, and just let the eating and the sleeping and it all just happen mechanically the way it's been going on. And what I really love are the retreats and the sitting and maybe I'll go to Burma, do the three-month course. In other words, uh, create some kind of a, a magical activity that's going to cure us, that's going to make it all better perfect. And what I'm saying is that that, I haven't seen that personally. Even though I do a lot of it and it's been invaluable, it can be misused. And the way in which it's misused, or at least one way, is that it comes to stand for the whole thing. We wax lyrical, we get teary-eyed whenever we think of Barry and a retreat. You know, we see a little Buddha someplace. Maybe you see it in a place where you don't see Buddhas normally and you get all choked up and touched. Some shoe store or something, downtown. (laughs) And there's zither music in the background. And because of that tremendous connection to it and the tremendous uh, investment and what we imbue, what we uh, impute to it, inadvertently, we use that to undermine the rest of our life, which is usually, for most of us, only about 99% of our life. I mean, realistically, how much time will you be spending here or at a comparable place during the next year or two? How many hours during the day will you sit in meditation? Small fraction. And yet, I would submit that perhaps the most important thing that we're doing is developing this mind because the degree to which it gets developed is a degree to which we begin to release ourselves from some suffering, to experience joy, clarity, compassion. And if the model of this work is such that the only time we do it is in this special time and place, and that special time and place is infrequent, and we just forget it the rest of our life, can you see the trap of that? Or to put it more positively, if the practice is seen as a way of life, then wherever we are is perfect. There's something in that situation that can, uh, has some uh, juice that can be extracted. Some, there's something in it that, that's useful for us in terms of what we're attempting to do here. Anyone have any questions about bringing it home? Talking about my life, just raises for 
become a higher show, I guess. It's the one about Buddhism and capitalism. I've, I've heard that a teacher, for instance, remarked here that he sees the two as being basically incompatible. And I've also heard other teachers, for example, some of the visiting lamas, or teachers, uh, encouraging us in a similar way that you are to, to be um, integrating the, the formal kind of practice with, with the work of, of the workaday world of holding a job and going to school, which is in effect aligning oneself with, in this country, a, you know, a, a so-called capitalist capital enterprise system. Is it really basically incompatible? And, uh, that level, uh, yeah, it doesn't mean much to me, your question. I don't mean to be insulting. I'm not, I don't feel I'm being insulting. Um, capitalism, communism, it's all nuts. Yeah. Tell me, go to another, tell me where you're going to go where it's not nuts. Russia, Scandinavia, that's great over there. They've got nice, very, they just commit suicide all the time. I guess sometimes it's a, it's a way for, for one such as myself to, to feel like the right thing is to, to avoid, avoid the so-called establishment. And I'm questioning it, so yeah. I'm not insulted by what you say. Yeah, I think the, 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 it's something, perhaps it's something like this. If, you, if we get rid of those global constructs mm. and just see it, I would be more comfortable if you had a particular job in mind mm. for you. Mm. And say, okay, what is this job? And then if you can spiritualize it when you're there. So then, instead of getting concerned in some abstract polemic, uh, it's, it boils down to something like this. In a way, each one of us is entrusted with a small piece of the universe. And are we, do, are we caring for it? Are we caring for that? And it, none of it's trivial. Whatever your job is, wherever you are, you're entrusted with a small piece of the universe. And forgetting about these uh, political concepts, uh, let's say you're in a restaurant, and it's a, I don't know, capitalist, you know, I suppose they all would be classified that way. It's not, a, it's not communal, it's not... Okay, uh, can you, let's say you're working, you're a cook, you're working in the restaurant, uh, can you bring real quality to the food? Can you bring real harmony to the staff? In other words, whatever, to whatever degree you're going to be there, if you want to put it in Buddhist terminology, can you bring the Buddha Dharma into the kitchen? Not getting caught up in all the... the uh, big constructs about what it is that you're doing, but concretely and factually improving the quality of life for you and the people that you work with. And extend that to your own situation. Is there anything in the situation? You're a waitress. You can see that as a drag, that you're doing that until you really become a ballerina or a poet. You know, I'm just, it's not my real job. I'm not a waiter or a waitress. And maybe 10 years of your life go by, or cab, this is Cambridge, I guess. Everyone is a cab driver and a waitress, but they aren't. You know, we're just doing this until we get the Nobel Prize. It's just temporary work, but sometimes it can be 10 years or five years. Um, you c can you flip it around? Can you make, let's say, being a waiter or a waitress service? It's a sensitive, delicate situation. People come in, eating is very highly charged. People come in, they're lonely. Uh, they want to be refurbished from a hard day. The person bringing the food is not doing a trivial thing. Actually, there's nothing trivial. Look at the guy who blows, blew the whistle in Corrado's story. 
look what he put into his job. I mean, he, he brought everyone up with blowing the whistle and getting all the trucks off the street, the cars off the street. Uh, I, I feel more comfortable getting at, a, getting at it at that level. At some level, it becomes very difficult. For example, in terms of, let's say, um, the, the level of, in a sense, corruption is so vast. Uh, I spent a number of to- uh, years at a university and you had strange things going on there, like one building uh, was, was totally financed by Shenley people, and it was on research on alcoholism. You know, now there's something a little weird there. In other words, they, uh, they were made, a, you know, a fortune manufacturing alcohol and then donated some of it, no doubt tax deductible, to create a biochemical research institute to study all of these forms of alcoholic addiction. Well, why not just stop making alcohol? But that would be asking for too much. I mean, that's too simple. Or the students, you know, would get outraged once a year and pick anything. Blood money, this money is... There's no clean money in the whole university. If they would start isolating what money qualifies to, to operate the university, they'd have to close the whole joint down. So you just pick one thing. This money came from that company and they're in this country and look what they're doing. How can you sort it out? I mean, we're, we're in the middle of it. We're not clean. not be a part of and not want to pay taxes and the way to avoid it you know, not being there I mean, the way to, to avoid it is, is to do something where I'm immune from it you know like either not make money or not you know do something like in terms of the draft like teach school where you're not being drafted but that isn't it isn't very fulfilling if it's if it's like it's sort of an in-between mm-hmm. area and so it's not really supporting yeah. what's going on out there and you know, maybe it's in the nature of samsara, you know, that it's, you know, that it's always going to be impure. If you're looking for purity on this level, I think maybe we're looking in the wrong place. But what we can do is do the best we can with what's at hand, wherever we find ourselves. You know, bring real integrity and quality to it. All three in unison. One, two... <laughs> um, why don't we we'll start and work our way back? Go ahead, Edgar. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. I'd like I'd like to maybe inquire a little bit into the difference between retreat and, and the, the whole concept of special life. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, when when I started doing this sort of pra- not this particular practice, I started doing a sort of Gurdjieff type work. They didn't call it meditation; they called it the work whatever you did and you went in and out and there was no sitting or anything like that. And then I went to a Vipassana retreat and uh, it was like very powerful for me because I had a very experiential awareness of something that they had talked about in the Gurdjieff. From that point on, uh, my experience was that there suddenly became a, uh, a division between retreat and, and the rest of life, even though I had been sort of indoctrinated in the idea of the work in general, you know, there was one part of my understanding that it had yeah. the whole thing, and the other part was that what you really got was in the retreat. Right. You know? And I've been struggling with that ever since then, just yeah. a long time. 
Um, and when I hear you speak and you know the conversations we've had over the past years and maybe and again today, um, you know, one part of me is saying yes, 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 and 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 the other part is saying, well, but you know, every time I leave the retreat and I and I go out there, qualitatively, it's different. Yes, yes, I, I understand your question. That's the problem. In other words, there, there are certain kinds of things that are attainable here. That's what I meant, which can be more dramatic. You know, you sit for a few weeks. Sometimes you can just get tremendous peace, right? Tremendous stillness, ecstasy, real fulfillment. Cut through a problem that you've been carrying around for a long time. And by and large, let's say you don't have that kind of dramatic experience unless you take drugs out there. And so, of course, that comes to stand for That's the problem. Yes. Uh, it sounds like at least one thing is that you're more highly motivated to pay attention when you're here than when you're in quotes there. Why? See, now, this becomes part of the practice itself. Inquiry. Okay, fine, you do this. You come here and wonderful experiences. You go there, space cadet. You don't know what's going on. Uh, if, if that doesn't matter to you, full speed ahead. You know, but probably what you're finding out is there's a price to be paid for living that way. Since, how, how many weeks do you spend here during a year? Well, let's say this year. This, no, this year is only one week. This five let's make it five weeks. Okay. The rest of your, look how much the rest of your time is in that car with the music, with everything you said. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.